Good evening. Hello. The book of Acts, chapter 18. All right. We're making progress slowly. I thought we'd, we'd, we'd smash Acts in one year. It doesn't seem to happen. Three years, here we go. And I'm really trying to deal with a lot of verses. Like tonight, that's ten verses. Um, last week we saw a fearful Paul. Paul was the most scared in Corinth. I think he was most excited in Berea. Because in Berea people had open Bibles and open minds. They were willing to learn to truth, even if it contradicted what they were used to. But in Corinth, Paul gets in there. It's a difficult city to deal with. I think it was a city filled with... Uh, some interesting people, prostitutes roaming the streets, um, immorality rampant, um, some gambling going about, the Isthmian games, the uh, drinking, um, the pharmakeia, a lot of interesting things. And Paul is there, and it, it, it seems at first when Paul gets into Corinth, he, ca he can't preach much. So he doesn't spend a lot of time preaching there. Um, he's, he's busy um, making tents. But then Timothy comes, Timothy and Silas, and they take over the tent making, perhaps, so that he can dedicate his time to, to preaching. During his tent making situation there, he meets two people. Do you remember their names? Husband and wife, Priscilla and Aquila. Which one's the male and which one's the female? Aquila's the male. And the guys make a big fuss about this. Because they say, why is it that the woman's name is used first? Why is it Priscilla and Aquila? And we'll talk about that in a moment's time. Great people they are. And Paul made them disciples. He taught them what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Um, so, so when Silas and Timothy come, then, then uh, Paul goes and he starts to preach in the, in the synagogue. And as usual, he reaches a stalemate with his people. They don't want to convert. And so he says, okay, then I wash my hands. I'm innocent of your blood. And he goes right next to the house next door. Incredible story. He goes to the house of Titius Justus, and he starts preaching the gospel there. And, and there was just a great conversion. And there's a very important guy in the city that's converted. Do you remember that from last week? The synagogue ruler is converted, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, but somewhere between this, God appears to him in a dream and says to him, listen, um, don't be afraid. Don't keep quiet. Continue preaching because I've got many people in this city. So that tells us, if we compare that with um, the text that we read in Corinthians, that Paul was scared in this place. Um, and we don't know exactly why. And it's not normal for us to see Paul the scared. But heaven knew that he was scared. And lo and behold, sort of after that vision, he does get arrested by the crowd and he's dragged in front of the, um, the governor. And as he's about to preach, the governor stands up for him, Gallio. And he says, hey, hey guys, don't bring this nonsense in front of me. And Paul is silenced. He doesn't even have to defend himself. Absolutely, absolutely incre incredible. And then what do they do? They turn on somebody and beat him. The new synagogue ruler. <laughs> it's like, I mean, if, if you read Acts, there's some really humorous parts in it. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Okay, so Paul is still now, he's in Corinth. God kept him safe there. And let's see what happens next. Uh, some questions to think about. Um, have you ever made a vow to God? What was interesting when I looked at this again tonight is I sort of grew up with the idea that you, you don't make vows to God. 
Well, if you look at what Paul did, that seems to be what he did. You can think about that and maybe what is a vow then? Secondly, how long does it take to become a true disciple of Jesus? One year, two years, three years, ten years? As long as we live, right? Thirdly, how do you know what God's will is in your life? That's a question that a lot of people ask. Should I take this job or that job? Should I move to this town or that town? How do I know what God's will is? And then lastly, what is the difference between two people if one received John's baptism and the other Jesus' baptism? So if there's two people in front of you, one's been receiving, received the baptism of John and one received the baptism of Jesus, what would be the difference between the two people? Ah, I heard it whispered there. I don't know who it was, but yes. All right. Questions to get our minds just thinking. Um, I skipped the map over there. Let me just go back to the map quickly to make sure that we're all geographically. This is Paul's second missionary journey. He started in Antioch. He's gone through Cilicia, Galatia. He was prevented from going to Bithynia and Pontus. And then he goes to Troas, reaches a dead end. He gets the call into Macedonia. The first city they pop in is Philippi. There Paul converts Lydia. Then they moved through Amphipolis into Thessalonica, where there was a big Jewish uh, situation there and persecution, and into Berea. The people studied their Bibles. And then he goes to Athens, and there's lots of idols in the city, remember? And then on to Corinth. There's Corinth over there. So that's where we are tonight. All right, let's see what happens next. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. So he was scared, but he manages to stay longer. He's not scared anymore because God appeared to him in a dream. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at King Crea because of a vow that he had taken. Let's just look at the map quickly there. So he is in Corinth and he's going to King Crea, which is right there. And then he's going to Syria. Do you see where Syria is? That's his destination. And why do you think he wants to go to Syria? Those who've been following the study. What do you think he's going to do in Syria? Antioch. He's going to Antioch. He's been sent from Antioch. He wants to go back and tell them how the ministry has been going. All right. So, so he finds himself on his way to, um, to, to, to Syria. And he, the text says that he's accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And so... What the guys say, in actual fact, I had recently one of the preachers in town, um, I sort of just brought it up in a discussion. I said, so, yeah, you know, how, how, how can we, how can, because they really want the churches to be unified in town. I said, well, how can you be unified if we have so many disagreements on what the Bible says? And one of the things that I brought up is the preaching of women, ladies preaching in, in the churches. And I thought that would be a simple subject to talk about because the text is pretty black and white and clear about that. Little knowing this guy had just sent his daughter to preaching school. And he brought up this. He said, well, you know what? I, I hear what, second, you know, what Timothy 2 says and, and all of that, but you've got to go read carefully. I mean, if you look at the book of Acts, you'll see that it's Aquila and Priscilla, and then it switches over to Priscilla and Aquila. And usually when the lady's name is mentioned first, it means that she's more prominent in ministry, and she was more zealous, and I can agree with that, I don't have a problem with that, but that doesn't mean that she took authority and took leadership and became the great preacher, okay, so I thought I'd just mention that here, if that ever comes up, and then it says that Paul took a vow, so I, I, I read up on this, and you know, it's so funny to read what the scholars say, because basically they all say a lot of stuff, and they don't have an answer, so I'm sorry, I don't have one either, <laughs> it's like, 
But if I had to take a guess, and I, I think sometimes we study the Bible as if everything is black and white and all the answers are very clear. It's not necessarily the case. But if I had to take a guess based on a text, I think he was taking a Nazarite vow. And I'll read it to you. It's in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord said to my, you want to read with me? You're welcome. Sorry, I'll, I'll wait a second if you want to. Or you can go read in your own time. But the whole chapter. Oh, I'm in Leviticus. Luckily, I paused for a second. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a special vow. We thought about that, making a special vow to God. If a, if a man wants to, or, or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins as long as they remain under their Nazarite vow. So it's not a permanent thing. They must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. And then it, it goes on about, um, you, you know, they're not allowed to touch a dead body, etc., etc. It gives a few things about that. And then they, they go on to speak of verse 9. If someone dies suddenly in the Nazarite's presence, thus, thus defiling the hair that symbolizes their dedication, they must shave their head on the seventh day, the day of their cleansing. Then on the eighth day, they must bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for the Nazarite because they sinned by being in the presence of the dead body. That same day, they are to consecrate their head again. It's very interesting stuff, this. Verse 13 says, Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the period of their dedication is over, they are to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. There they are to present their offerings to the Lord, a year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering, a year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of bread made with the finest flour and without yeast, thick loaves with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves brushed with olive oil. The priest is to present all these before the Lord and make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread, and is to sacrifice the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord, together with its grain. I can just go on and on. This is a loaded. Right? It's almost like this morning, the inconvenience that you've got to go through to, 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 um, to, to, for, for Levites and the priests to, to serve God if they touch a dead body. If you make a vow to God as a Nazarite, that's, that's quite a loaded deal. You're not allowed to shave your hair. So the question then, because, and then, then after that, you've got to go to the temple. When you, when, when you finish with a vow, you've got to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And then you've got to do all of these sacrifices that the priest has to do for you. It's a loaded thing. So, I'm not going to go into all the details of that, but this seems to fit best what is happening here. So, what I read up, what these guys say is that when somebody makes a vow to God, that maybe they are going through a dangerous situation, then they make a vow to God to stay committed. And part of that vow is to say, Lord, come what may, I'm going to endure this and stand up for you and go through this, and I ask you to be with me to give me strength as I go through this, and I'm going to make a vow to you, and this is it. I'm not going to touch fermented drink and all of the things that 
you, you saw there in the text, and I'm not going to cut my hair. And when the period comes where the vow is taken, uh, is, comes to an end, then you would shave your hair. And in that way, signify that you've kept your vow to God. And some of the guys, like Josephus writes about, that you take the hair then to the temple, and there would be some burning of the hair and things like that, which is not in the Bible, but that's what some of the Jewish historians say. And so what they say, they think happened here, is that Paul... If, if you were far away from Jerusalem, you wouldn't wait to get to the temple before you, you shave your hair. You would shave your hair when the period of your vow has come to an end, and then you would take the hair with you to the temple in Jerusalem and go do what the text says over here. That's the best explanation that I could find, and you know that's open for debate. And that would make sense to me, because you're going to see in the upcoming text, that Paul doesn't just... He's not just going to Antioch, he goes to Jerusalem. And he specifically wants to go to Jerusalem. So that lines it up, sort of. Um, and Paul had just come out of perhaps the most fearful experience of his life. He'd just come out of Corinth. And maybe he did make a vow to God in Corinth. Maybe he made a vow to God and said, I'll keep on speaking in your name, even though I'm deadly scared. Because the first time we see Paul actually being scared. That's potentially the case. That's potentially an explanation of uh, what's happening here. Either way, Paul made this vow freely. He did not, because some scholars would say, oh, it couldn't have been that he made a Nazarite vow, or any type of Jewish vow, because he wasn't under the law. Well, you'll see later on that some of these types of vows still take place in the book of Acts. Paul did this to connect with the Jews, potentially. It's not that he believed it's law to make vows this way, um, it's something that he did out of his own for God. And I do believe that the same as well. If you want to make a commitment to God and a vow to God, you're welcome to do that. My personal opinion. You're free to do that. But you're not under law that you must. So he did it out of commitment to God. A vow is a solemn promise made to God to perform or abstain from performing certain thing, a certain thing. It's an earnest promise. Now, I would be careful of just making vows. Ecclesiastes tells us, be very careful of making vows, because you've got to keep it. And so, if you do make a vow to God, you've got to make it seriously, to the extent that you're willing to cut off your hair. That's not a problem for you, Brother Tim. Or you, my brother. One of these days, me neither. It's like saying to God, I will preach. I will commit to the message. I will keep fighting for the gospel. And when I, when I thought about that, you know, what is your I will tonight? What promise do you make to God tonight? That if you don't keep it, you're willing to shave your hair off for. Obviously, that doesn't count for you two gentlemen. But I mean, Zacchaeus said, I will give half of my possessions to the poor right now. That's a commitment. That's a vow. That's a promise. Peter says, I will leave everything for you. There's a lot of these I will statements. I'd like to do a series of sermons on that one day. All the statements in the Bible where people say to God, I will this or I will that. That's, that's powerful words. And, and I think when people get baptized, they don't realize what they are willing. They're saying to God, I give you everything. I will dedicate the rest of my life for you. Getting baptized is, is essentially it's a vow. I am yours. So what is your I will statement? If you had to put it down tonight, what would it be? I will serve you till I die. I will put you first. I will seek your kingdom. 
I will seek your righteousness. I mean, you can fill in the blank over there. All right, so we know where we're going. Everybody with me on the map? They are in King Kriya. That's where he shaved his hair. I know it's hard to imagine that Paul had a ponytail, but maybe he did at this point. I don't know. They arrived at Ephesus. That's the next place where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. We know that's what he did. And when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. That's strange that he would decline. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. That's quite, that's quite a lot of places that's mentioned like in a few verses. So if we go to the map quickly, he says, we were in Cancria, I shaved my hair, we went to Ephesus, I left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and then I left woo, all the way to Caesarea, I popped in at Jerusalem, and then I went up to Antioch. It's quite a loaded, um, a loaded trip over there. Paul leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. Why? Well, it seems like to continue with the ministry. He had known them. We know that Paul sort of stayed um, at least 18 months in, in Corinth, and that's where he met them. So he had spent, let's say, about two years with, him, with them, and they were now ready to go on with ministry, to make disciples. Two years. Jesus spent three years to make his disciples. Paul, probably between two and three years, had spent time with Priscilla and Aquila, and they were now ready to take on the ministry. He did not stay um, longer over there uh, in Ephesus, even though they asked him to stay longer. He chooses to keep his commitment to God despite the wants of these people. Does anybody here have the King James Version with them? Can, can, can you get it? I should have put it in my notes here, but the King James Version says something different there. The King James Version says in verse 21 that he, was, he had to go to a feast in Jerusalem. Now, I didn't unpack that further to figure out why all the translations I read doesn't include that, but the King James Version and the original language seems to include that. So there's some manuscripts that, that don't include it. But this is why I believe it's potentially a Nazarite vow, because verse 21 says in the King James Version that um, he had to go to Jerusalem for the feast. We're not sure what feast that is, but maybe that links up. Do you have it? Yeah. Does it say that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect that as well. But would you mind reading for us what the King James says? Yeah. Yeah. So it's possible that he went to Jerusalem to, 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 to formally end his 
his vow and to participate in one of, one of the feasts. Some of the guys say it's, it, it's the Passover feast. But either way, his priority was to get to Jerusalem. And he was willing to say to these people, listen, I know you want me around, but it's time for me to, to go. Um, and then he says something beautiful that we also say, right? Um, if it is God's will. In the first section, I sort of pointed out Paul, Paul, through the vow, Paul is saying, I will. I will do this. I will commit this. And now we see in this beautiful section of text that Paul understood that there's certain things that he wills, but there's certain things that God wills. And he understood that pretty well. Paul had learned up to this point that sometimes you go, you want to go up north, you get blocked into Bithynia. And sometimes God takes you to places that you didn't expect to go. So he has had this journey with God. Um, it's a statement that I've seen in my life so well. If you're trying to figure out what God's will is in your life, one of the principles that I have found in my personal life to work very well and to help me gather um, direction is if God opens a door, nobody can close it. And if God closes a door, then nobody can open it. And so if there's a door open in front of me, I believe it's been opened by God and I can go through it. If, it does, if it does, it's not related to sin and unholiness, then I can go through that door. And sometimes you have three or four doors open. Maybe God has opened all four of them. And you can go through any one of those. But if there's a door closed, it doesn't even help asking if it's God's will or not. Because it's closed. If it was God's will, it, it, it would have been open. Um, so Paul had plans, but he always subconsciously submitted those plans to God. So now he's back in Antioch, right? Let's see where he goes next. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And he sort of, it's written as if it's just a small little area. Galatia and Phrygia, which is there. You see it there? So, I mean, he's in Antioch, and it's not like he's driving a Mercedes-Benz or BMW. I mean, it's, a, it's quite a mission. And the text says, what did he go do there? He went to go strengthen the disciples. Episterizo. To strengthen them, to establish them, to render them firm, to build up. Why would the church need this? Well, he's been through there how many times? Twice. Well, he came the first time. He came the first time through there. Let's just recap quickly. The first time he came through that area to Derby, and then he went back through that area. So that area he's been in once. Most of Asia, we don't hear that he was there because he moved up through the north, and he didn't preach in Asia. Do you remember the text said he wasn't allowed to preach in there? God put a muzzle on his mouth. So it's potentially, so he, he went all the way, his first missionary journey, I went through there to Derby, and then he went back again. So he visited those, so he went once and then twice, so it's back. So this is, this is his third time in that area of um, Galatia. I think that he had to strengthen them because they needed missional success. In actual fact, sorry, it's the fourth time because he went to pick up Timothy and um, in Derby or Lystra. We're not sure which one of those towns. These people were in um, pagan territory. This was 
this was not a godly area, Galatia, and um, I think they needed that strengthening by the apostles. So what happens next in the text? Meanwhile, as this was going on, Paul was traveling around place to place. What was happening in Ephesus? Because remember, that's where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. Who knows where Alexandria is? Egypt, Africa, right? So he's all the way from Alexandria. He came to Ephesus. And he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Sure, a lot of stuff to unpack there. So Apollos enters, and the text says that he is a learned man. The Greek word is logios, where we get logos from. He's eloquent, I think the New American Standard says. He's a fluent orator. He's got an ability with words. He can speak. He's rational. He's wise. He's skilled in speech, essentially what it means. Good speaker. He was thorough in the Scriptures. That's the second thing there, thorough knowledge. Thorough in the Scriptures. The King James says he was mighty in the Scriptures. And the Greek word there is dunatos. Do you remember what dunamis is? Dunamis is something attached to the Holy Spirit, and it's power. It's what the apostles received in Jerusalem. The apostles received dunamis. And Apollos has dunatos. It's a difference between these two words. Dunatos means that he's able, he's capable. He's got skill to do stuff. And that skill is situated in him as a person. He's got ability. Let's call it natural talent to use his mouth. So he's capable. But that wasn't the dunamis, the power of the Spirit. That's an ability that God had given him. Everybody with me? It's dunatos, not dunamis. It's not the power. It's not the dynamite. Dunamis is where we get the word dynamite from. The power that comes from the Holy Spirit. So what Apollos has is a tremendous skill and ability to communicate. He understands the Scriptures. He can teach the Scriptures. Okay? He had been instructed. The Greek word is kataikio, where we get the word catechism from. He's been to Sunday school, right? Somebody has taught him. We don't know who taught him. Um, he knew the way of Jesus. He was zealous in the Spirit, and not the Holy Spirit, zealous in His Spirit. Okay, His breath was zealous, but He only knew the baptism of John. It's interesting that baptism is raised here, because so many people say, well, baptism is not important. If it's not that important, why is it raised here? Isn't Jesus enough? The way of Jesus, isn't that enough? Why would this such be, be such a contentious issue at this point in time? Why would Priscilla and Aquila want to engage him on this topic? Um, 
he's, he's, his teaching is great, he's, he's, he's pretty accurate, he, but, but he lacks just seemingly this one thing. His teaching on baptism is incorrect. Okay, why make a big deal of it? What is the one thing he lacked? The one thing he lacked is directly connected to baptism. He has the do not toss. He does not have the do not miss. He has ability that God has given him, but he doesn't have the Spirit of God that only God can give through being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why it is so important. That's why baptism and the correct understanding of baptism is so important. That's the point, the Bible says, that God deposits His dunamis into us. Very, very important. So he was preaching very well. But he was preaching with his own knowledge, his own ability, his own spirit, and not the Holy Spirit. Without the Spirit, you serve God in your own strength. You cannot say what Paul says, that I'm, I'm working mightily by God's energy. You can't say that if the Spirit is not in you. In, in, in this idea, you are saved by your own righteousness, not His righteousness. You are sanctified through your own ability, not through the working of the Holy Spirit. You try to obtain holiness from the outside instead of what the Holy Spirit does on the inside. The Holy Spirit is, is it's essential, it's, it's immovable from the Christian faith. You can't remove it. And therefore, you cannot remove the baptism. That's the point of entry. Let me just clarify this again. For maybe somebody's here tonight that don't know this. Acts 2, verse 38 says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So, just want to clarify that. In case it's not, you know, this isn't made up stuff. That's what we see in right in the beginning of the book of Acts. Some people think, well, baptism's like, yeah, maybe uh, that doesn't really matter. That's not what the text says. It says that's the point where the Spirit gets in. So, this, this guy preaches, and the other two hear him, but then they take him aside to teach him more accurately. Um, he had so many things down and understood so many things except this one uh, teaching. And here's the beauty of Priscilla and Aquila. They've only been disciples of Jesus for, for we assume, between two and three years. And they get to take on this mighty preacher in the synagogue and say, hey, let's teach you more accurately. That should be our goal, to make disciples that can stand up for truth, that can preach the truth. When Apollos, verse 27, wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Sometimes this is how it works. He was already preaching very well in Ephesus, and he meets some people that correct him a little bit. And then he goes on with the ministry, and now he's stronger and better. That's the role that we play in one another's lives. We help each other the whole time. We sharpen each other to become more effective preachers for the gospel. So they sent him with a letter, and he became a powerful preacher to the church there. And later on, do you know where else we see him in the Bible? 
Anybody know? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Corinth seems to know about this guy. In actual fact, Paul writes and he says, oh, some of you are following Apollos. He'd become such a great preacher that people became, um, they, 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 people became confused about who to follow, Jesus or this guy. Apollos is one of the guys being mentioned there. So he became a powerful leader in the churches of um, those, those Greek places like Corinth, for example. Good disciples become a great help. That's what I see in this text. We see Apollos. He was a good guy. A little bit of tweaking. He became a great disciple. And great disciples can really help people a lot. All right. You know how it goes. Now I'm done talking. What do you say and see? Yes, brother. 